This is Freedom Investor Radio, and I'm John Pearl. It hit me like a freight train when I realized there was a better way. When I discovered that I could take my future into my own hands. When I realized I could invest my way to freedom. This is what I'm working towards. In each episode of Freedom Investor Radio, we will explore the tactics and strategies used by the top real estate investors and entrepreneurs in the nation. We will learn how you can start investing your way to freedom and take control of your life. Thanks so much for tuning in. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Freedom Investor Radio. I'm your host, John Pearl. And today I am joined by Jeremy Roll of Roll Investment Group. How are you doing today, Jeremy? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm excited for this. We met back in January down in Los Angeles at Intelligent Investors Real Estate Conference hosted by Hunter Thompson and ASIM Capital. And I've been looking forward to this conversation ever since. So Jeremy, I'm just going to hand it over to you. And if you would, just please give us an overview of what you're doing now and kind of how you got to this point in your life. Absolutely. So thanks again for having me on. I just hope this is helpful for whoever's listening here. So I am originally from Montreal, Canada, spent about half my life up there and then moved down to the US, did an MBA over at UPenn or or the Wharton School, spent over 10 years in the business world, just in corporate America, just to give everybody an idea. My last two jobs are actually, my last one was Toyota headquarters here in Los Angeles, previously Disney headquarters in Burbank. And I was just going down the typical corporate or going up the typical corporate ladder. And I started investing in alternative investments, including real estate, some other stuff, passively in 2002 after the dot-com crash, for anyone who remembers that. And really what I was looking for personally, and of course, there's like a thousand ways to invest, none of them are wrong, it's just whatever suits you. But I was looking for more predictability for my retirement account, you know, 10, 20, or 30, 40 years down the road, to watching the stock market go up and down 30% in a year at that time with the dot-com crash, which is not the right fit for me and concerned me about, you know, is this the right retirement strategy for me? So I started to run my money from stocks and bonds into cash flow. And really what I concluded was that looking for lower risk, more predictable cash flow that had like more highly occupied real estate, for example, where the predictability was a little higher was probably the best fit for me. And so I started doing that in 2002. Eventually in 2007, I got out of the corporate world from the cash flow. And so I've been a full-time passive cash flow investor now for 15 years, but investing in passive cash flow opportunities for 20. I also am uh, an advisor for Realty Mogul, who is, I think, the largest real estate crowdfunding website. I've been with them since before they launched back in 2012. So it's been 10 years now, actually. I am technically a real estate license broker in California for real estate, but I've only ever used it for investing purposes. I've had that for almost 15 years. And I manage a group of over 1,000, actually over 1,500 investors who are looking for passive opportunities as well that I started in 2002. But my full-time job really my number one focus is just finding more opportunities for me to reinvest in so I can continue my cash flow stream, continue to build my cash flow snowball with the main goal of never having to go back to the corporate world really. That's my number one concern. So far 15 years and it's going okay. So got it. And you say so you started investing in cash flow. For those that may not know what that means, can you kind of describe what that looks like? So you're working in the corporate world and then you start investing in cash flow opportunities. So what does that look like? Yeah, so it's a concept I'm just going to take, hopefully most people understand because a lot of people lived in apartment buildings. So it's a concept of being able to invest X amount of dollars into apartment building that's being purchased. And I'm normally in something called a syndication, which is basically they're pooling a lot of investors together and buying a pretty sizable building. A lot of the stuff that I invest in is going to be between 15 and $30 million and possibly more in terms of the actual acquisition price. 
Importantly, I'm a very big fan of diversification. So I love being in a building that has over 100 units or 100 tenants, because if you're going into it and it's 100% occupied and one person leaves, it's not really going to interrupt the cash flow very much, right? And that's where that predictability comes in. So I prefer to be a small piece of bigger deals. And essentially what happens is that once you invest in an opportunity that is cash flowing, which for its means is profitable, then typically every quarter I'll get some type of cash flow distribution, which is a check that's sent to me as an investor, sent to all the investors for my pro rata share of the profits essentially. So that's what the cash flow is. It's actually you as an investor receiving a periodic payment of the pro rata profits of an opportunity you invested in. Got it. So you mentioned you were not liking the roller coaster of the stock market. So what was the process like of discovering these alternate opportunities and your educational process and the vetting of getting into these deals? Yeah, look, to be fair, it was a very different time. And it's actually a lot easier to do now than it was back then. Because most of the opportunities I invest in are all private and not allowed to be publicly marketed even today, although some are, but most still aren't. And if you can imagine, there was basically, you couldn't really use the internet, right? Because of private opportunities. There were no podcasts. There were no conferences. There were no online forums. And there were basically no investor groups either. So back then, what I did, and I was very lucky because I was in Los Angeles, a big city. So I was actually able to go to a whole bunch of real estate meetings and network And this is before I had kids. I actually dedicated going to like two or three meetings a week, right? Which is a lot because you're doing a lot of traffic, you know, driving. But anyway, I was younger. It was feasible. And that's how I eventually built up finding the opportunities. Vetting them was a combination of me learning about how to vet them along with maybe getting referred by an investor who was already with the sponsor and then already having a little bit of a head start on the vetting process. But the bottom line is today, you can find opportunities. First of all, you can log on to Realty Mogul or other crowdfunding websites if you're an accredited investor and literally in your pajamas, find 20 or 30 apartment deals to actually choose from and just click and you're in, right? That's how much easier it is. So you could be anywhere in the US or anywhere, I was going to say the world, but most of the time they only take US investors. But anyway, and you could do it at any hour, right? You could do it at midnight. You could do it at 7 a.m. on a Saturday. You don't have to be at the beholden of like, when is this meeting happening? I have to sit in traffic for an hour, et cetera. Podcasts now are typically a very, very good way as well to learn about what sponsors are doing. There's literally too many podcasts for everybody to listen to. I really am not exaggerating. I mean, I've personally been on over 100 podcasts just myself as a guest, and some of them have over 1,500 episodes. So literally endless amount of content if you want to learn and find opportunities and do both at the same time. There's online forums that you could do that with as well now. There's conferences, which I happen to love, and that's actually where we met. And you know, in fact, we were both at the same conferences in the last two months. And it's just great for networking, finding opportunities, finding sponsors, networking with other investors. So my journey was strictly based on networking, but strictly based on in-person networking because those were the times and it's very different today. Right. Totally. So one of the things I learned from you, you were on stage at both of the conferences I was at that we were at together. So I know you've got some knowledge on economics and some opinions on what's going on right now. So I'd love to hear some of your opinions on the current inflationary environment and how we as investors can protect ourselves and our equity in times like this. Sure. So look, we're recording this in early 2022 and inflation is rampant and it's rising, unfortunately. And the Fed has already you know, announced its first interest rate hike and then has announced that it's probably going to do one at each of its future meetings in 2022 and is going to start really trying to tackle it aggressively, hopefully. So you know, we have a few things all converging at the same time. We have high inflation, we have interest rates that are rising, and we have very high oil prices above more than 50% of typical median price. And so when you have what's really fascinating is actually recessions are typically caused by at least one of those. We have all three at the exact same time, right? Which is rare. And 
as a result, and by the way, for those of you, well, there's probably a lot of people who may not understand this out there, but I watched the yield curve very, very closely to gauge as to whether there's going to be a high probability of a recession coming up in the next six to 24 or six to 18 months. And we're getting really close to the indicator saying yes, like really, really close. Like, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if we hit it in the next two to four weeks. So I'm anticipating a recession in the next six to 24 months or seven to 24 months. We are seeing interest rates going up, which also can push down asset prices. We're seeing inflation, which could cause less consumer spending and result in recession and cause people to be able to afford less rents and asset prices. We have a lot of headwinds, essentially, right? And that's my own take on it. I'm not a financial advisor. I think just my perspective as an investor. So what I'm doing is I'm trying to be very, very defensive, right? Because in the stuff I invest in, I'm not invested in very heavy value add stuff. We're adding a lot of value, creating a lot of padding, and that even if the prices go down, my risk isn't really as bad because we're adding a lot of padding. I tend to invest in stabilized stuff where you may not even be adding any value at all. I'm just trying to get the cash flow. But the danger is that if I invest at the wrong asset price and it goes down, that's a huge problem for me because we're not creating any padding. So what I've done for myself is I've said, okay, where can I still get my money working? Because the worst thing you could do right now as an investor is just have cash because it's being eaten away by inflation, right? Ray Dalio, one of the, I think he manages the largest hedge fund in the world. His famous quote is cash is trash. And right now, and it's so true because every day it's sitting in a bank account, it's worthless and you're literally getting behind. And so in the, you know, with the goal of trying to get my money continuing to work, I'm focused on three buckets at the moment. First bucket is short-term opportunities that I think have a really good risk reward scenario in order for me to be able to get my money back within a short-term period so that I can maybe redeploy it if asset prices adjust downwards. Because right now my number one concern are asset prices decreasing in the next 12 to 24 months. So a really good example of that bucket would be hard money lending, where you're actually lending to someone who's flipping a single family home. They're buying an existing home, rehabbing it, reselling it. And I did a ton of, in fact, I did a record amount for myself last year when there was an unbelievable supply and demand imbalance and prices were just jetting up. It looks like there's still a supply problem this year. So I've done quite a lot this year as I've already deployed and I'm going to reevaluate at the end of the year. I do it almost every year, but I'm really heavy on it right now because I think the risk reward is still really good for investors. I'm going to have to reevaluate at the end of the year. Second bucket would be unusual opportunities where there is a lot of padding built in without very much risk, or the pricing is so unusual or just totally off that it actually builds in padding when you go in at closing, right? So there's always unusual opportunities out there, no matter where, what time you're investing, even in the worst of times and the best of times. And at this point, when you're being defensive, it's very hard to find them because there's a lot of money chasing deals right now and asset prices are very high, but they're out there. Really good example is I actually just, in fact, next week, I'm going to invest in another one of these. I'm investing in these tax abated apartment buildings where they're actually turning them from a regular apartment building into half of the units become income restricted. So they're relatively low income, either 60% or 80% of area median income. And long story short is that the housing authority will then abate the taxes. It's probably not worth getting into all the detail, but we basically are investing like a real example, two property portfolio, really nice class A buildings in Houston, $165 million acquisition, which I know is very large. The appraisal from the lenders came back with the new structure without the same amount of taxes. 85% of the taxes were removed without a reduction in revenue. Those buildings appraised at 200.3 million before we've closed because of the change in structure once it was put under contract. So that is the ability to get padding without any operational executional risk at closing and gives me the padding and the comfort level that if prices go down and adjust, 
we have padding we can work with. It's almost a one-to-one -one equity coverage ratio. For almost every dollar of equity, it's about 88% or 89%. We have an additional dollar of padding. So that's very unusual, very hard to find those, very specific type of operator, but gives me the comfort level to go in at this very timing, even though I'm concerned about asset prices adjusting, right? And then bucket number three is opportunities where I do not need to worry about asset prices going down anyway. So if you think about it, there are some opportunities, specifically non-real estate, where you're investing in assets that are already going to depreciate. So the best example I have is I've been investing in ATM machines since 2008. Those are computers with cases, bill feeder screens, keypads that literally wear over time and are almost worth zero at the end of maybe about 5% residual value in maybe five to 10 years. So I already know they're going to depreciate to zero. My concern is the predictability of the cash flow that we talked about. And I don't even care if during a recession, the machines become worth less because that's not the business model, right? I don't really care about an asset price adjustment. I care about the cash flow continuing. So I've been investing in ATM since January 2008, prior to the previous recession, seen it, and actually now I've been in two recessions, seen how they react in recessions. They tend to be pretty resilient in the right locations. And so I have a very high confidence that this cash flow is going to continue and not at all worried about the asset price adjusting. So that's another bucket where if something you know has hopefully high predictability of cash flow and pretty good returns and the asset prices you know don't really matter as much, that's another good fit for me right now. So I've been trying to pivot, work on these three buckets. To be clear, my favorite thing to do is a typical real estate asset that is very easy, highly occupied, you know, long-term hold for cash flow. But right now I'm really concerned about the asset prices adjusting. So I'm doing these other things. Great. So I want to dive in just a little bit deeper on each one of those. So we'll circle back to the, the short-term investments and hard money lending. So what does that look like on the, the individual investor level? Are you actually linking up with somebody who is flipping a house and providing them the loan? Or are you doing this through a fund or something like that? Right. So I've done both over the years, for sure. Last year, I did mostly direct loans to individuals through a friend of mine who brokers them. I just switched to a fund model this year because he's no longer doing that. And I, I really, I've become very good friends with him. I just have a very high degree of confidence and he's flipped over 1500 homes. So he definitely knows what he's doing. So I'm currently in a fund structure. I prefer to be an individual loan so I can cherry pick the loans, but those are very hard to find. And I'm in a fund structure that has a lot of flexibility in terms of be able to get out of it. And also once certain loans turn, you can have the option of getting out of it. Got it. And then, okay, moving on to tax abated multifamily opportunities. Just wanted to make sure I understand that correctly. So you can get the tax benefit comes when you agree to have a certain amount of the units under, they're going to not have, they're going to reach a, a rent cap. They're not going to go over a certain amount of rent. Is that right? So basically it turns into low-income housing tax credit a type of opportunity where the units are restricted. So the half units are turned into restricted units, income restricted. And then of the, that half, half of them become 60% a maximum area median income for a tenant to qualify being in that unit. And the other half are 80% of area median income. So almost not low income because it's also an area median income. And then in exchange for converting it to lower income housing for part of it, the housing authorities will commonly abate the vast majority of the taxes. In the case of this deal, they're removing 85% of the taxes. Now, the key to this type of investing is that you want to find a building that's way under market rent so that you actually do hit that rent cap that's required going in, right? The rent ceiling that is published. Without, so you don't have to take a hit to the revenue at all if the building's really below market rents enough and not just like no one's saying that, but it's actual and it's meeting the criteria. And then you have, in this case, a 41% reduction in expenses. That's why the appraisal is so much higher because the net operating income goes way up because you don't 
reduce revenue, but you reduce expensive dramatically. And so you have to be licensed to be able to run these. You have to really know what you're doing, right? So you want the right type of operator. It's kind of rare, but that's the basics of how it works. Got it. And then, okay, moving on. One thing that you said, I think it was in Denver at Best Ever Conference that stood out in my mind that I had never really thought about was, so a lot of people think, you know, inflation, 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 the prices of these assets are going to just keep going up. One thing you mentioned was expense inflation. And... (laughs) You know, if the expenses are going up more than the income is going up, then that's not a good thing. You know, the NOI is going to end up going down. So that was something that stood out in my mind. And then when you include, you know, interest rates going up and cap rates going up, then it can just be a recipe for disaster. Do you have anything in addition to add on to that? Something just go a little deeper? Yeah, look, I appreciate you bringing it up because what's been really frustrating me this year is that if you look at the published inflation from the government, and I think it's 7.9% currently, What's interesting is, first of all, they adjusted the way they calculated that in January of 2022, very quietly. They previously adjusted it a couple of times. They first started adjusting it in 1982, which coincidentally was when they wanted inflation to look better, right? So it's not a coincidence. And nor is it a coincidence they adjusted at the beginning of this year either, right? It's just not a coincidence. It just happened to happen in the exact times. So if you take a look at a website called shadowstats.com, you can actually see various ways it's been calculated in the past versus today. And if you look at the pre-1982 calculation of inflation versus today methodology, you will find that inflation is actually 15% and not 7.9%, right? So without getting into a specific name, I, I, there's a very well-known operator who has publicly said that his expenses are budgeted and locked in contracts to increase 13% this year. That's a huge apartments indicator. And so the question is, you know, can you keep up at over 13% in rents or are you going to fall behind? And I feel like this is one of the biggest topics of the year that I've never heard someone else talk about. And it's driving me nuts because it's a huge factor for an investor to consider, right? So I was talking to an investor about this the other day. If you're investing in Arizona, where rents in certain markets have been shooting up, then maybe you can actually manage that for this year. It was manageable last year. But what happens if you're investing in Kentucky or if you're investing, and I'm not trying to pick on Kentucky, Area X, where the rents just don't have that power. And yet your expenses, you're still being exposed to the same challenge of expenses, right? In many cases, and you're not going to keep up. What ends up happening, just so everybody understands, is that your net operating income goes down by the end of the year. So you can invest in a building in January this year as an investor, and the end of the year, it's worth less, even at the same multiple, because your profits are actually lower, right? Your net operating income is lower. And what's worse is that with interest rates going up, cap rates are probably going to adjust upwards, which means that people are going to pay a lower multiple. And then you have a compounded effect of your profits are lower and people paying you a lower multiple and your buildings were compounded lower, right? And that means that you know when you're evaluating an opportunity to invest in today, you have to take that into account because that is a huge risk. So anyway, I just want to make sure everybody was clear about what that was because I've, I've been telling people on the phone all these calls I have. And like, I don't know whether the sponsors are worried about talking about it or everybody else just thinks they're going to be able to keep up with inflation. It might just be me, but I don't understand how I haven't heard anybody say this ever in any source. Really, it's weird. Yeah, when you said that, it was kind of an eye opener for me. And I, you know, I made sure to make a note to bring that up during our conversation today. So that was thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, and I want to add that I specifically asked on stage at Best Ever Conference and there were 1200 tickets sold at that conference. How many show of hands have actually thought about this? And I think I saw about five. I'm not even exaggerating, <laughs> Not right? too many, yeah. Yeah, and I was actually surprised I saw any because I haven't been able to find anybody who's told me they thought about it yet, like when I've been talking one-on-one with people. So anyway, I'm just a little passionate about it because I just don't understand how people haven't been thinking about this. 
Yeah, great to know. And so while we're on the topic of red flags to look out for, what are some other things, whether it's your passive investor when assessing a new opportunity to invest in or a new deal sponsor to invest in? What are some things that you've seen over the years that are big red flags? Okay. Well, do you want me to make it specific to the current environment or just general? However you want to go. Let's start with specific current environment. Okay. So I spoke to a partner at the largest mortgage broker for commercial real estate and apartments and stuff in, in Texas a couple of weeks ago. I know him very well. And he told me that as an example, these bridge loans that have been used for value-add opportunities on apartment buildings, which has become very common, you know, these three years plus two on your extensions, not only are the lenders now pulling back on them, they're making them lower loan to values to make them less risky for the lender. But the secondary market where the lenders sell them off to, like they don't keep them on their books, that actually a lot of people have left that market. They're not buying them anymore. And that's because of more and more risk as we get closer to a recession and all these other indicators we're talking about. So interest rates have also adjusted upwards on those and continue to. And so if you're looking at a value-add building today, this year, which is the typical model that a lot of apartment syndicators have been using, just know that you're at a greater risk right now just from a lending perspective than you were you know, a few months ago. And that's probably going to continue to tighten. And so just keep that in mind. And definitely, I would inquire very closely about that when you're trying to understand the deal and really vetting through it. As far as general comments, I mean, look, for me, the way that I invest, because I'm a low-risk investor, I've always told people, I'm trying to find someone who's very conservative, is using very conservative assumptions to be able to, with the purpose of under-promising and over-delivering to investors so that they can actually build long-term relations with investors and grow their business over time. What I'm trying to avoid is the sponsor who is just a great marketer has a really flashy you know, deck. And by the way, a flashy deck could be fine too. A presentation is fine, but they're using really aggressive assumptions and are making the numbers look really attractive to attract investors, but don't really care if you invest in them because they have a marketing machine. They're just going to go on to the next investor next time. I mean, I saw a deal that was sent to me yesterday. There was a self-storage deal that was projecting a 30% IRR and it wasn't a development deal. At this time in the market, and I just looked at it and said, I really feel bad for the investors going into it. Like, I don't know how it's possible they're going to hit that number. It's like, it's not even possible in the best of times, you know? So anyway, so, you know, be very weary of sponsors who are, who may be over-promising. Look at those assumptions very carefully and make sure they're matching up with your own philosophy. I mentioned before that there's a thousand ways to invest. Nothing's wrong with them. And if you're an aggressive investor, that's great as long as you agree with all the assumptions. For me personally, it's got to be the right personality fit. And I'm trying to match with the sponsor that is has the same mindset. The, the best sponsor I can be investing with is a sponsor who I'm so much on the same page with that when they send me a deal, literally nine times out of 10, we're so on the same page, I'm going to move forward on it because we have the exact same mentality. And there's a lot of sponsors that's not the case for with me as well that I have to then put aside. So I would say that from a high level, that's a very important thing to keep in mind. I always do background checks on all of the sponsors. That is just a black and white policy. I very rarely do I hear of other investors running background checks. And I think that's unfortunate because I've been saved several times over the years, if not more than that, from people who are obviously scammers just even looking at their background check, right? Because they're out there. And so always run a background check, spend a little bit of money on it. You're about to invest a lot of money, spend a little money on getting that done up front just to be sure everything looks okay. Other things, I would also say one more thing. If you're new to investing, I was talking to someone yesterday who's brand new to investing and they say, look, I want to deploy into two deals a year for the next 10 years and get out of the corporate world. And while I love hearing that because I see how it changes lives, it's changed my life completely in doing so, I have to then ask them the question, okay, well, you're now at a point where you have the capital. So the timing is good for you. 
Is the timing right in the market for you to do that though? Because I think a lot of investors tend to go with the timing that is right for them. But as an investor, you have to look at the cycles, really formulate an opinion about where we are in the economic cycle and decide if the timing is right for you. You may need to delay a couple of years if you decide the timing is wrong. But either way, you just formulate your own opinion. But do take the time to get a sense of what's going on in the economy, how that can affect the asset classes you're about to invest in. Because I unfortunately, I honestly find most investors don't think that far ahead when they're going into a deal. And these types of deals are very illiquid and you've got to think ahead, right? Because you're locking your money in. So that's another suggestion I have as a general high level that I see sometimes investors don't do. That's awesome stuff. So Jeremy, I just want to ask you one more question for the day. So I ask all of my guests this for a little bit of background. I work at a nuclear power plant, Diablo Canyon Power Plant on the central coast of California. It's shutting down in 2025. So my mission is between now and then to replace my W-2 income with income from real estate. What is one piece of advice you would have for folks like me or other folks who are looking to exit the W-2 world? I know you just kind of touched on that a little bit, but one piece of advice for folks like us. Yeah. If you're brand new and trying to get down this path, I would tell you to learn as much as possible before dipping your toe. Don't just go in blindly. And the way that I always recommend you do that, and I'm not an advisor or whatever, but the way I would do it again is focus on the asset class you understand the best up front. So if you grew up in a mobile home park, start mobile home parks, so you know that better than most people. If you have been in apartment buildings for a while and you under, or you've lived in them before and you can relate to them, that's a great asset class if you can really understand it. So focus on one, learn it as best as possible because about 80% of what you learn in that asset class will be transferable to others. You know, there's revenues, there's expenses, there's assumptions, et cetera. Some things have to be tweaked, different business models, but start with one, focus on one. Don't get sidetracked by looking at five because you want to laser focus, really learn properly, and then finally dip your toe in, but make sure you take the time to learn up front first rather than just jumping in. Great. Jeremy, if, if folks are interested in getting in touch with you, is there any way they can do that? Absolutely. Yeah. Anyone's welcome to reach out to me. If you're brand new, if I can help in any way, if you're another experienced investor, you want to network or another investor group or sponsor, you want to network, feel free to email me. That's the best way to reach me. It's jroll, J-R-O-L-L at Roll Investments, R-O-L-L Investments with an S.com. So jroll at rollinvestments.com. Awesome. Ladies and gentlemen, Jeremy Roll, thanks so much for coming on. No problem at all. Thank you for having me. I hope this is helpful for everybody who listened out there. Absolutely. Thanks, Jeremy. Thank you for listening to Freedom Investor Radio. If you like what you heard, make sure to rate, review, subscribe, and share with a friend. Thanks again for listening.